0: Hello and welcome to the National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast brought to you by the Southern Arizona office. My name is Matt Gubard. And I'm Charlotte Hart.
1: Thanks for joining us. Today we have an interview with Charlie Steen III, who's the son of Charlie Steen. Some of you may know as one of the first archaeologists who worked here in Arizona for the National Park Service, starting his career at Tonto National Monument as a junior archaeologist. And uh, moving from uh, park to park, also serving at Casa Grande and other sites here in Arizona. So, we'll first talk about um, an example of his work at one of these parks. We'll have the interview. And then, after the interview, we'll um, talk about uh, preservation here in Arizona and answer some of your questions. So Charlie Steen's mark is found throughout uh, National Park Service archaeology. And there are tons of projects that we do today that, um, you know, harken back to something that he did previously. And one of my favorite examples of this um, is an artifact that we have in the Casa Grande ruins national monument collection that uh, for the last 75 years or so has been described as a rubber ball. Um, So this Rubber ball, supposed rubber ball, is um, just part of a larger object. It's kind of um, a mass that doesn't look like a ball itself. Um, but it's this mass that, to me, I never would have picked up as something rubber or as a ball. It, um, it has a greenish hue to it that makes me think that it might be some sort of derivative of um, copper or um, copper ores and um and it's certainly not something that i would have necessarily thought would be you know a, a amazing item that could tell us a lot about um Hohokam activities but um charlie steen did see something in the in this artifact and uh, broke off a piece and burned it and it smelled like rubber so that's where he got this idea that it was a rubber ball um and there were two pieces and he, uh, being the person that he was and, and thinking that science and archaeology um, go hand-in-hand hand and that we needed to investigate, he sent off a piece to be analyzed and get more information about it.
2: So Charlie Steen sends a piece of what he thinks is a rubber ball to uh, the Engineering Defense Training Facility, which, is at, which was at the University of Southern California, and this is in April of 1941. And he sends it to this chemist named Dr. Stringfield. Uh, and what's interesting about this is uh, Charlie Steen has this concept of interdisciplinary research. So he wants to find out more about the ball. He sends it to a laboratory. Um, but uh, it gets lost somewhere uh, after 1941, probably because uh, of the war and uh, the efforts of, of this particular chemist and in, in, uh, other things. So it gets lost. Uh, and um, time just goes on, and nobody knows what happens to it. Um, Dean takes the other half of the ball, and he puts it at the park um, somewhere. Uh, and then he's called off to the war, and when he returns, he doesn't find it. So this ball is lost, or, or seems to be lost, uh, until the 1980s, when an archaeologist working at the park ends up finding it uh, in a death store.
1: So that archaeologist, Andresen, he picks up where Charlie Steen left off and thinks that the same concept of interdisciplinary research is essentially important. And he ends up collaborating with uh, Werner Zimt, who's uh, a chemist um, and They test the ball to find out what it's actually made of and come back with amazing results that it's not rubber as we know it. It's actually composed of um, upwards of 40% of sulfur, which turns everything that we've been saying about this ball um, kind of on its head.
2: So uh, we've kind of picked up this research now, uh, and we've uh, tried to build on kind of what some of uh, the earlier work was. And... We don't really know yet, um, but one of the theories is that perhaps this thing that Charles King got was a rubber ball may actually be an example, um, the earliest example of the vulcanization of rubber, so adding sulfur to uh, rubbers to increase its durability. Now, all of that may be subject to change depending on what we find, but what's interesting is this whole idea uh, of Kind of science building on earlier science, and so um, what we end up learning about this object uh, will invariably be related to all of the other things and questions that were asked in the past, which is really interesting.
1: So all of this really interesting research that we do today, as Matt said, is based on work that um, early archaeologists did. And um, even if we look back and think like, oh, they didn't have the, the tools that we have today, they still did pioneering research and set us up um, to, do, um, to do the work that we're doing. So um, I'm excited to hear from Charlie Steen III, uh, the son
3: of Charlie Steen. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yes.
0: Well, so uh, we're here to talk um, a little bit about your father, but before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what your job is, and what your research interests are?
3: Yes, I cover early modern European history here at the university, which means I do European history from the Reformation through the French Revolution. And I also do the freshman class, the Western Civilization, a class I adore, and senior seminars when... uh, for the graduate students when when needed. My research interests are in cultural history. I've written on the Netherlands, and uh, at present I'm writing a, sort of a textbook on cultural history from 1500 to 1800, trying to use as much literature and art that hasn't been deeply covered before. Sort of my passion is grade B art, the art of ordinary people, And I'm trying to write a book on the basis of as much of that as possible. But that's about it. I've been here for years. I came here in 1969. Uh, My association with the university is very long. I did my BA here and then went to UCLA to do a doctorate. I came to my profession not through what my father did, but through what he read and the influence he had on me in terms of admiring material culture. And the interaction with people and place, Uh, and that led me into uh, history rather than into archaeology.
0: Interesting. Uh, Yeah, we. uh, I I found just in my experience that um, the children of archaeologists often don't want to become archaeologists themselves. I don't think that that's probably unique to archaeology. That's that's probably uh, something that happens in a lot of families, but. your interests are really are really similar, and it sounds like
3: your your father had a big influence on you. Oh, indeed, yes. Uh, there it is. Every time I look at a building, I deconstruct it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, um, I just we took this research trip recently. We're just back from that, and I was trying to gather material on Renaissance cities uh, that were left in eastern France and western Germany, and in the Netherlands. And it's uh, it's the same sort of thing that he would have done. Uh, sometimes I can't tell when I'm going over our photos, which he took and which I took.
0: <laughs> well, so uh, for our listeners uh, who may not know who your father is, uh, he is one of uh, several, um, I guess we could say, early National Park Service archaeologists. So he was sort of... Um, the first generation of professional archaeologists to uh, be stationed in national park areas. One of the first places that he worked was uh, Tano National Monument, which today is a very remote place. Uh, he was, he started there uh, in 1934, and his title was Ranger in Charge. And he kept uh, some notes about his experiences there. And from those notes, it seems as if the working and the living conditions were pretty difficult. Uh, And and often really lonely. Um, Today, Tano is is, again, a credibly remote place. But back in the 1930s, it must have been um, like living on the moon, maybe. Uh, What do you think about this job uh, appealed to him?
3: One, it was a job in his field uh, shortly after he graduated. And I know that he was enormously happy to get it and happy to stay in the uh, in the southwest he had gone to school in colorado grown up for a long time in colorado and uh, was already had been made visits with his uh, archaeology class into arizona and new mexico and was happy to stay here it was what he wanted to do and it was hard living out there i remember some stories mostly about nature. Um, he just took the the sort of loneliness for granted that was surprised by visitors and pleased to have them. But uh, he didn't mind the solitude in many ways. He had one story that I remember clearly. It was one of those rare full moons when it's closest to Earth. And he said it was the first time they'd ever been able to read uh, by moonlight. And it was that bright. He said it was astonishing. He even, I think, took a couple of pictures. Wow. But he really loved the place. Um, And he loved the park service. Uh, In southern Arizona is, uh, well, he met my mother in Tucson, uh, where she was finishing at the University of Arizona. And so that was the origin of of the family as well.
0: Hmm. I think... um, in my in my experience, one of the things that kind of connects park rangers uh, from past to present is, is our interests. I mean, it, it attracts a certain type of person. Uh, and certainly there are lots of national park locations now which are still um, can be lonely spots. Or uh, And it seems like park rangers often enjoy that solitude. So uh, one of the things I appreciate about some of the things that your father wrote is that um, I feel like, Uh, I can often relate to some of the things that that he experienced in his career, uh, and that I think builds kind of a a, sort of a connection
3: in some ways. I agree that uh, so many of the people that I met throughout his career that were still with the Park Service, uh, they were in touch with not only the profession but with where they were and had a real appreciation for what they were doing, even if it was in the natural part of, of Glacier or something like this. They still had this keen sense of place and of history and of the importance, particularly, of the unique site that they were protecting.
0: Right. Well, so so following his tenure at Tano National Monument, he uh, served in what I think is a number of different positions. Uh, Just a couple of them I found was, Uh, He had the title of junior naturalist uh, for a period of time, and uh, then he served as the headquarters archaeologist for a period of time. Uh, And all of these jobs gave him access to uh, some of the most incredible national park locations for archaeology, arguably in the American Southwest and certainly in Arizona. Um, How do you think uh, some of his early career experiences influenced his views on historic preservation and the role of the National Park Service in protecting some of these really iconic
3: places. Oh, I think it had a profound effect. Uh, When he was most active in in terms of dirt archaeology, he was so aware of the contest between uh, rebuilding and trying to preserve what was and realizing that if you were simply trying to leave things as they were, it was not going to last. And so what do you do about it? And uh, I I remember he was trying to use some chemical applications that were being used by, uh, I think, University of Texas on some of their sites. And he tried other things Uh, instead of just roofing something over, uh, trying to leave it exposed so that people could see it as it was, uh, as much as it was, um, that was remaining. But, no, he always thought in terms of if you uncover it, if you dig it up, how do you keep it from falling apart? And so that was something he then began to apply to his view of historic buildings as well, uh, you know, post-Columbian. And
0: that's, and that's, again, very similar to kind of how we do business today. We're always uh, thinking toward the future and trying to develop preservation strategies um, that will, you know, have a long-term positive effect on the resources. So I think in some ways um, that mindset and and that sort of process of trying to figure out uh, the best treatment options for these places, I think it started with um, his generation in the parks and and the work that they did. And we always reference um, that early work uh, sort of as a lessons learned uh, for, for how to do business. And then also of course, uh, things not to do because there were important things that that uh, were discovered over the sort of um, uh, over that process that are important for us today. So um, your father's influence is, is really important to to how we do a sort of preservation in the parks even today.
3: Right, and he tried to do some of this also uh, after his retirement when he went to Jordan. Um, For a second time. And then at at Ashdod in Israel, Mm -hmm. where, again, the subject wasn't excavation, but preservation. Uh, And trying to just Mm -hmm. maintain what was and determining how to show the public in the best possible way what was without doing further damage. Oh, interesting. I I wasn't aware that he uh, he did that. Can you tell us a little more about that? He was working particularly with uh, helping the Jordanians to establish their own park system and was assisting a new generation of post-British archaeologists there, uh, young Jordanians, uh, in trying to um, find a, a positive way of delimiting access to sites that were in urban areas and preserving as best possible the sites that were still rural and could be easily uh, walled off and made into regular zones for visit, as opposed to those that were in urban areas and susceptible to foot traffic and had been for generations. Uh, But it was was a a very interesting time. And uh, a number of the archaeologists he worked with there came here for several months at a time uh, to see how, Places as different as uh, Grand Canyon and Pecos would work uh, huh. because they had the same the same issues with uh, having canyon lands as well as open sites.
0: Sure, huh? It's really interesting. Well, so uh, <laughs> you uh, this. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but this is kind of a silly question. But um, we know your father from what he wrote. Uh, particularly his technical reports. And to be honest, uh, technical reports are often very boring. Um, You're but, not joking. <laughs> <laughs> but um, your father is kind of known for his humor. He often uh, interjects humor into the reports, which uh, in my experience makes them much easier uh, to read. Um, can you talk a little bit about what his personality was like outside
3: of work? Well, essentially, he was a serious individual. Uh, He did have humor, and there were many light times, but many more serious ones. But he had a keen sense of the absurd and the keen sense of how funny things happen or come to you, even when you're doing serious business, uh, when traveling, when the, the mistakes, the accidents that will occur when working on a site or working with other people. And I think that that's what he sort of, oh, grounded his responses to life on. But it wasn't a consistent thing. I mean, this wasn't um, a a joke-ridden life for him, but it was one with laughter. Sure, sure, of course.
0: Well, so uh, he eventually became the regional archaeologist in Santa Fe. And for our listeners, that means that he had uh, quite a lot of influence um, over the the development and the implementation of of National Park Service archaeology in the Southwest. Um, do you have any sense for some of the challenges that he might have faced uh, during that time?
3: I remember uh, quite a bit of discussion of this because of the... <laughs> it's silly now, but at that time, budget cuts were a serious issue. This was in the 1950s, and there was not enough money to hire a sufficient number of professionals. And so it was at this time that the Park Service started very serious contract archaeology with the universities in the Southwest, Uh, particularly when it became a crisis uh, as oil pipelines were being placed across the the Southwest. Um, And so there was discussion of how best to have this sort of university Park service cooperation on uh, on digs and on surveys, and he spent a lot of time on the road doing that.
0: Interesting.
3: Um, so
0: he so, so this so this period of time when he's the regional archaeologist. This is is this in the nineteen fifties and sixties or nineteen sixties? Okay. So this is sort of the, the in some ways the. The, the birth of contract archaeology, um, particularly with the passage of the National Historic Preservation Act, uh, and that was in 1966. Um, for our listeners who maybe uh, aren't aware, uh, that was something that was passed in part um, because of the interest of the public in protecting historic places that were being damaged by, uh, you know, government funded projects for things like you mentioned, like pipelines, for instance. So, Uh, Your father was really instrumental in in advocating for the passage of the National Historic Preservation Act. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, his role in the creation or the development of uh, this piece of of really important
3: preservation uh, law? Well, he really got into it in terms of trying to go to the places that were most threatened, uh, whether by dam construction or by the expansion of, well, particularly he was very sensitive to what the Corps of Engineers was trying to accomplish on waterways. And so that took him into the Mississippi and Missouri areas. But so also into the ends of uh, the Colorado. Uh, he spent a lot of time trying to photograph everything that was in the canyons uh, prior to the finishing of uh, of the big dam. Um, and so it was, it was very mixed in terms of Where he could find time and enough, oh, sort of involvement to have the energy to try to identify places for preservation. Sometimes small areas were were easy, but then often he would try to cooperate with states on that uh, because of limited funding. At least this is my memory. I mean, he was so often on the road, and sometimes he'd talk extensively about what had gone on when he came back, but... It was too often the same sort of story of trying to preserve what you could uh, with the inevitability of, particularly with dam construction or canal construction along the river systems, of irretrievable loss. So it sounds
0: like he was involved both on the fieldwork side, actually doing the documentation work on site, but also involved in working with uh, local governments or other agencies to make sure that. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, it's such the, the, the 1960s and the passage of the National Star Preservation Act is such an important part um, of the way that we do archaeology today. It, it kind of frames uh, how we do business um, in some ways, both in the Park Service, but also um, on federal land at, at large. And, and so many archaeologists are uh, employed in part through contract firms that that work. Within the confines of of the National Historic Preservation Act, and uh, until the passage of that law, th- there weren't as many archaeologists around, and so that's a really big turning point for I think the discipline um, at large. So today, archaeology is pretty big business. Uh, again, in part because of the National Historic Preservation Act. Um, do you have any feeling for for how your father would would feel about the current state of of archaeology in the country?
3: Well, he was very pleased with the effects that would sort of generalize archaeology, making – but I, bet, I I think that he would be disappointed in the sort of – some of the professional groups that have grown up in recent times. Uh, but he liked some of them very much. There, there was one that was doing some pipeline archaeology here for a CO2 pipe that was going from the Four Corners to Texas. And it cut across wide swaths of New Mexico while he was still alive. And he kept up with what was happening there. And I was uh, one of my former colleagues was one of their archaeologists. And so he had personal contact with this. And he was pleased with that work, but not so pleased with other work, which was often done uh, with an eye to the bottom line (laughs) uh, rather than to the science.
4: So it sounds um, like he was frustrated with a lot of things that we still get frustrated with. And I, I think
3: have- it's a never-ending story. I really do.
4: <laughs> right. Did you get a sense um, when he you know, was still working in the, in the 60s and would come back from these long trips that he still had some hope for the future of archaeology?
3: Well, he did. But it, after his retirement, his last engagement was working for as as the archaeologists for the Los Alamos National Labs. And he did, to his great pleasure, a good deal of dirt archaeology up on the Pajarito Plateau and was talking to people who were interested in archaeology and he would have some people who would come in as students and work for a while as uh, part of their academic career. But above all else, it was the interest that the labs brought to it that uh, pleased him the most, and it gave him some real insight into what he hoped would happen, is to have more biological and natural sciences come into archaeology so there was more scientific examination of findings, uh, even in addition to what was already there. Uh, He was very pleased to send things off to biology labs, for example, and he felt that this was going to be an, an area of, uh, considerable interest, uh, and I realize that this has gone on since and has improved enormously.
4: Definitely, and you know, starting with um, with efforts like your father's to um, to collaborate with universities and and other agencies for um, you know chemical analyses and and other, like you said, natural and biological studies.
3: One other place that where where he really got into the history. Of and how to preserve it, was at Tumakakuri.
2: Huh.
3: Uh, Wonderful. And, and this this was also in the, uh, oh, 51, 52, I can't remember the exact date, but we spent a summer at uh, Tubac while he was at huh. um and going back and forth. And he, one of his real concerns there, I even remember from despite my youth at that time, was how to go about preserving the place without remaking it because it was in such uh, poor repair at that time.
4: That again is still a question that we have today. I um, have been helping out both Matt and I have been helping out with a project down there to um, uh, not necessarily at Tumacockery. They're still doing work there as well, but the project we've been helping out with is at a um, another associated church called Guavavi that, All right. uh, that we've, you know, Uh, And asking and trying to answer the best to our abilities, those same questions.
0: All right. Um, So is there anything else uh, that you think listeners should know uh, about your father's career?
3: No, it's just that it was his uh, interests were very wide. Uh, I was preparing his photos and slides to be sent down to the Tucson Archive of the NPS, and I still have some work to do on uh, some black and white photos that he took while he was in the army in Burma, that sort of interruption in his uh, archaeological career. And that's where he is more anthropologist than archaeologist. But um, there's there's this undercurrent of uh, a sort of a general interest in human endeavor. And what it. Its remains, uh, both materially and intellectually, in printed or crafted or painted results, Uh, I really appreciate his ideas on that. Uh, We had exciting times, oftentimes, in terms of discussion of findings, but they weren't necessarily just archaeological. Uh, It was an appreciation of nature as well as of the past but that's, you know, the, again, these are memories some stronger than others. Uh, and like all family memories, uh, somebody on the outside might uh, recollect something quite different. But in terms of his professional interests, I think rather not uh, that he was, I think, well known for having a very eclectic view toward uh, humanity and the world.
4: Right, so your conversations kind of focused on the human condition.
3: Human condition and also um, the natural condition and where they met.
4: Right, that intersection is so important. Mm -hmm.
3: Yes, and still you could have the same. Well, we're we're all having these subjects uh, revived again and again for us. Right.
4: Do you have any favorite memories from going um, out to work with him?
3: Uh, my favorite memories are in Canyon de Che, and this is when I was little. It would be 1949, 1950. Um, we lived out there. He was working at CETA and at uh, White House. Mm-hmm. And I just remember the, the solitude, the work, the uh, – it was, it was strange. One of the things I remember the most is how my father had to sort of manage – Um, using Navajo labor and their beliefs, and they were very old-fashioned then, on um, these prehistoric sites where the Navajos had a certain appreciation for what they were doing, but very little overall appreciation for Anasazi culture. Um, It was always a very careful dance. Uh, but what really cemented the relationship between my father and this group was the death of the father of one of his workers. And, uh, my dad helped out quite a lot. Uh, and from that point on, we had good Navajo friends.
4: Nice.
0: Great. Um, So thanks for sharing uh, all these stories today. We really appreciate it. And I think it's worth mentioning that if the listeners are interested in uh, reading some of uh, what your father wrote, particularly about Tano National Monument, uh, they can go to www.nps.gov and navigate to the Tano National Monument uh, site. Uh, And there is a collection of some of his observations about his time Uh, at the park in the 1930s. And they're really interesting. So uh, I would encourage
3: everybody to check those out. If anyone uh, has questions that I can deal with, contact me.
2: All right. uh, So thanks so much for talking with us today, Charlie.
3: And I thank you for talking to me.
2: The part of the podcast where we answer uh, a question from the listeners. Um, Admittedly, we don't have any questions uh, specifically about Charlie Steen or about the history uh, of the Park Service, but uh, listeners may be um, interested in being able to find more information. So, Charlotte, where can uh, the listeners go to get more information either on Charlie Steen or the early history of the Park Service here in the Southwest?
1: So Tonto National Monument has um, a web page that has snippets from some of the um, monthly reports that Charlie Steen would write, and those are really cool because that's um, you know right it's right from Charlie Steen's mouth what was going on at the time and um, the excitement about what he was doing as preservation treatment. So they have a web page um, dedicated to that, and then Casa Grande has a web page um, that's. Excellently details um, all of the different kind of chemical treatments that have been done to the um, to the ruins there. So those are two uh, online resources that you can go to, and I'll have those um, those links in the notes for this um, episode um, of the podcast. And then also, as um, Charlie the Third in the interview mentioned, um, he's happy to have people email him and ask more questions.
2: So when we first kind of decided that we were going to do this interview uh, with Dr. Steen. I think our original intent was to talk a lot about the National Historic Preservation Act uh, and how it came into being, and we certainly talked about that during the interview. But there was a lot of other interesting topics that came up as well um, that I think are are worth mentioning. Also, uh, one of the really interesting things about Charlie Steen is that throughout the entire course of his career, he was really interested uh, in sort of pushing forward the science of historic preservation by testing uh, products and materials that could uh, increase the durability of fragile walls or help to protect those walls for uh, you know, periods of time that would allow the National Park Service to do a better job of, of um, protecting and preserving them.
1: A lot of the work that Charlie Steen was doing was on the actual um, resources that we have at park Unit. Today, um, because we've learned so much, we will end up building test walls to test out new products so that we know the full extent of, um, of the product's capability before we actually apply it to the resource that's in the field. To do that, we need uh, another interdisciplinary team. So just like Charlie Steen was Um, looking at um, scientists outside of the Park Service to help with his research and um, his efforts to preserve these um, uh, American um, national park sites. He... um, Today, we use interdisciplinary teams um, with uh, masons and other traditional craftspeople um, so that we're making walls in the same method that um, that these resources that we're trying to preserve were made so that we can um, make sure that we're getting our preservation treatments just right.
4: The National Park Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast is a production of the Southern Arizona Office of the National Park Service. Our artwork was designed by Laura Burkhart. Justin Mossman composed our music. We look forward to hearing from you. Matt and I will be with you again next week.